my pleasure today to welcome Professor Federico Varese, <coughs> who is Professor of Criminology here in Oxford in the Department of Sociology, which is slightly surprising to those of you who are, who are studying in the Department of Criminal and Centre for Criminology. So Federico actually used to be part of the Centre for Criminology and then moved over to Sociology, where there are actually other criminologists lurking as well. So you might take a look at their, their uh, series of talks and lectures. Um, Federico is also the director of the Extra Legal Governance Institute, um, a research associate of the Centre for Criminology and a senior research fellow at Nuffield College, Oxford. He's best known for the work that he um, has published over many years about the mafia, and he's, he's published many books about the mafia. The most recent one, I believe, was in 2017, uh, which was called Mafia Life, Love, Death and Money at the Heart of Organised Crime. Today, Federico will be speaking about the relationship between democracy and the mafia, paying special attention to recent developments in Hong Kong and possibly in Russia, although I'm not sure if it's actually just Hong Kong. But anyway, I'm going to hand over to, over to Federico. He'll talk for about an hour, which will then give us half an hour for questions. So thank you. Thank you very much. It's a great to, to be invited back to, um, to talk uh, to, to you. So um, I wanted to tell you briefly about the motivation for this, uh, for this talk. Um, as, as, uh, as you just heard, I work on, uh, on organized crime mainly, and I come from Italy, so it might be natural to, to be interested in the relationship between democracy and organized crime. But the most immediate reason why I decided to keep thinking and thinking a bit deeper than usual on the relationship between organized crime and the mafia actually had to do with Hong Kong. So I, when I was in, uh, in uh, writing this final book, this Mafia on Mafia Life, something quite extraordinary happened. There was a, a movement for democracy in Hong Kong, uh, and the, what the students wanted, mainly it was a student-led movement, what the students wanted was basically what we already have, the idea that you have one vote, one person, the principles of democracy. It was a peaceful movement, which lasted between September and December 2014. Now, as I was writing my book, uh, something quite extraordinary for me happened, namely that the students uh, were attacked uh, in their protest in, for democracy by thugs, by what transpired possibly could have been the local organized crime groups called the triads, on which I was, I was writing my book. So as soon as I heard that, I jumped on the first plane and went to, uh, to Hong Kong and, uh, and wrote a paper on that with a collaborator. I'll talk, talk more about that uh, paper in a second. So that was the main motivation that led me to, uh, to, to write uh, on, on this particular topic and reflect more broadly on the relationship between democracy and, and the mafia. So what I'm going to do today in the hour that I have been allocated is, first of all, try to make some sense of what we mean by organized crime uh, and the mafia. Um, it's a very complicated set of concepts, very disputed set of concepts, and I want to make some sort of um, clarification and, uh, and try to have some analytical distinctions between them. And then I also want to discuss uh, an additional concept, which is... Uh, somehow a cousin, you know, a relative of the mafia and organized crime, but it's not quite the same, which is what um, the literature has called thugs uh, for hire. And finally, I spend the, the second half of my talk uh, on this case study uh, on, uh, on democratic mobilization and, uh, and organized crime in Hong Kong. These are the papers upon which I'll be drawing. Uh, so I wrote uh, once a, a chapter on, uh, on the definition of organized crime for a handbook, uh, well, no, it's a collection of papers, 
Uh, with Paolo Campana, we wrote a piece in the British Journal of Criminology about uh, organized crime in this country, uh, and so I will draw on that. And most importantly, of course, is the paper I wrote with Rebecca uh, Wong. Rebecca is a, was a student in Oxford, did a DPhil in, in sociology, and she's a trained lawyer, now she's back in Hong Kong as a, as a university professor. We wrote a paper called Research and Triads, Democratic Mobilization Organized Crime in Hong Kong, which uh, got a lot of attention quite recently uh, in uh, so uh, at some point recently I was uh, interviewed a lot and the paper uh, became a hit for the journal. <laughs> uh, and then uh, this, some of this work goes into my book, uh, uh, Mafia Life. So let me, let me uh, say, put forward the key arguments I would like you to remember uh, if, uh, about this talk. Uh, the key arguments I'm going to make, some of them will be more elaborate, others will be less elaborated today, is that mafias prefer democracies to totalitarian regimes. Mafias thrive in democracies, are born normally at the time of democratic transitions, and they want democracy, they need democracies. However, mafias, as you might expect, are not good for democracy. They are effect. The effect of mafias on democracy is actually to reduce genuine electoral competition. So while they thrive in democracy, they um, only uh, promote and work with a limited number of political parties. I won't have much time to discuss electoral systems, but there are some electoral systems which are better for the mafia to manipulate for their own purposes. And the other general point, uh, which fits with the previous ones, of course, is that as a regime becomes more authoritarian, uh, mafias might, uh, obviously they have less room, less scope for uh, action, and they might turn into a, just into an arm of the state, what this concept tries to capture uh, thugs um, for hire. So that's, that's the key argument. So in a sense, mafias are not in favor of totalitarian or authoritarian regimes. Now let me start with the, the first point I want to talk about and um, hopefully try to clarify a bit what we mean by, by organized crime and the mafia. Now if you, if you look at the standard definitions of organized crime that you find in the literature or in the UN definition or there is a UK definition, these are definitions which are pretty vague and general. Uh, three people uh, or more that exist for a period of time, they act together with the aim of committing a crime punishable by at least four years incarceration to obtain a financial benefit or some material benefit. That would uh, cover most of what criminology studies. It's a very, very broad definition. Three people getting together uh, with the aim of committing a crime. Now, the UK definition, which shows up in several documents in this country, is pretty similar. Organized crime is people working together with the intent and capacity to commit serious crime. Of course, what is defined by serious, it uh, could, you know, uh, could be anything. Um, and this includes some sort of planning, control, coordination, and structure. So these definitions tend to be extremely vague on what uh, constitutes organized crime, and also tend to focus on the structure. I mean, if you want to be charitable to these definitions, they are aimed at telling us, look, there is some degree of organization. You know? Crime that is organized is organized crime. That's, in a sense, what, so three people, if the three of us get together and plan to steal you know, a few pounds from the budget of the Center for Criminology, we will be organized crime. Um, <laughs> now, that, and then you go to the extreme of studying the mafia in Sicily, you know, and it would be uh, basically under the same concept. Now, I may have um, 
you know, for these reasons, to have such a broad definition, but analytically you cannot do very much with this. You would put people who are very different uh, for in the same basket, intellectual, conceptual basket. So it's not surprising. It's not surprising that some very distinguished scholars, Smith is an American criminologist from the 70s, uh, Mike Levy, Van Lampe, Van Duna, more relative and more contemporary criminologists, they came up to the conclusion that we might as well take the concept and throw it in the bin. Uh, organized crime is a concept so overburdened with stereotyped imagery that it cannot meet uh, the basic requirements of a definition. It does not include what it should include. It does not exclude what it should exclude. So damning definition, damning judgment on the concept. And so, as I was saying, uh, Klaus van Lampe, Mike Levy, who is a professor in this country, uh, Van Doon, who is in Holland, I think, they came to the conclusion that we should um, dispense altogether with the concept of organized crime. Now, other scholars, including myself, is, uh, have, have come to the conclusion that we might try to rescue the concept, try to do something with it instead of throwing it in the bin. And uh, to cut a long story short, um, I've published, as I told you, this introduction on what is organized crime in the BJ Cream paper uh, with Power Campana. We also come up with an attempt to have an analytical definition, which is now what is coming next. I can see the next slide on my computer, so I know what's coming next. Um, so what do we try to do with the, with the concept of organized crime? We try to unpack it. And basically, we think there are three key activities that go on in the underworld, in the uh, both legal, uh, especially illegal markets, but also in some legal markets, illegal. There are some people in illegal markets that specialize in the production of goods and services. So, if you go to Colombia, where I was recently, uh, thanks to my sabbatical, in fact, I was there for three or four weeks, uh, a few months ago, you know, you go to the countryside, you go to the, to the forest, and there are peasants who, who farm uh, leaves that are then turned into coca paste, and then eventually produced into a good, which is um, uh, cocaine. Uh, there is heroin, of course, produced in Afghanistan, in Burma. Also for this book, Mafia Life, I went to visit the area called the Golden Triangle in the Burma uh, border with China, and basically the main activity of the people there is to produce heroin. And these are uh, people in the fields that produce, uh, they are like peasants, basically. Or China is specialized in the production of counterfeit goods. So now these people are very different from uh, those who are involved in a very different activity that requires a different kind of skills, which is to take the goods to m and move them somewhere. So there are people who specialize in moving goods as opposed to producing them. And you, as you can appreciate, these three concepts are pretty much standard in um, economics, in sociology, economic sociology. So we're not reinventing the wheel. All we are saying is that why don't we apply the simple concepts that we already have in uh, standard political science, sociology, and economics to the world that we study, namely organized crime. And so there are an activity which is about moving goods from one place to another, human smuggling, drug trafficking. The people who traffic the drugs from Colombia to Calabria, um, for instance, these are very different from the people who sit uh, in the fields and produce the drugs. They have different skills. They are usually business people. They speak several languages, um, and they've traveled a lot. So they are a different professional uh, skill set. They have a different professional skill set. Money laundering, also uh, 
lots of cybercrime. If you think about cybercrime, which is something I've been working on recently as well, what is cybercrime? Cybercrime is going on to a web page, which is usually hidden in the so-called dark web, and buying and selling stolen goods. So there is a architecture in the so-called dark web that puts on it um, goods and services that you buy and sell. So a lot of what cybercrime is about is buying and selling goods. So trading, right? Ultimately it's about trading. Uh, informal banking, the so-called hawala, again, that is a way to move money illegally and informally from, say, uh, Afghanistan to, to Italy or back from uh, Italy to Afghanistan, often to pay for drugs. And finally, we come to the sort of exciting part, which is the one I've been working on for the past 20 plus years, which is a third type of activity, which is not involved in producing or trading goods, is involved in giving others the permission to produce or to trade. So it's involved in governance. These are people who want to govern what other people do. And this is where you find uh, what I would call governance-type organized crime, or where you will find... Uh, the mafia, for instance, the, the organized crime that we know exists in Italy, in Russia, in Hong Kong, and in, in, in other countries, in Japan, of course. So what do they do? They are involved in settling disputes between people. If you have a dispute over access to your driveway and you have a dispute with your neighbors, in a place like parts of neighbors of neighborhoods of Palermo, you go to the local mafia boss to discuss the matter. They protect people against competition, businessmen, they protect against thieves, uh, labor racketeering, they organize labor uh, workers, uh, the intimidation of lawful right orders, they recover debts. And one of the main activities of the mafia, in fact, is to enforce cartel agreements. So there are businessmen who want to corner a certain sector, sector of the economy, a certain market. The mafia comes in and makes sure that competitors who are outside the cartel don't get in, and also those who are on the cartel they are punishment, punished if they uh, cheat on the cartel agreement. Are you always me? Does it make sense? Yeah? So, this is a very different, and it requires different skills, of course. Here, violence is absolutely crucial. Violence is a key element of this particular activity. Now, there is a long list of scholars, uh, starting from Hobbes to Charles Thierry, Thomas Schelling, who is an economist, uh, Diego Gambetta, of course, who has written about this. Uh, a long list of scholars who have specified the kind of also theory that derives from this. You know, if you are in the business of governance, well, obviously, uh, there cannot be two governance structures in the same place on the same uh, activity. Obviously, there is a sense of exclusivity. Turf war. You know, as much as states fight uh, between themselves, uh, so do mafias. You know? And when we see turf war between two gangs, you know, you might, we might think they are crazy, or we might think they are actually fighting over territory in order to be the only governance structure in that particular territory. So, to cut a long story short, um, I think this is a much better way to think about organized crime, and it, it, you might appreciate the fact also that it is based on activities. So it's not so much saying, oh, it's about how long you hang together with, how sophisticated is your internal structure. No, it's about what you do. So it's a definition based on activities, not so much on organization. Then, of course, uh, we can think of the organization as a byproduct of the activity, as a consequence, as a dependent variable. So if you want to govern, obviously, you must need some structure. You know, if, it's like if you want to organize an army, you need uh, people who run the army, you need uh, a hierarchy, for instance. So you, you, you will be able to derive the structure 
from, uh, from the activity. Are you with me? Yeah? Um, so let me go to the next uh, slide and then... Uh, um, to the, I mean, obviously, uh, what this slide is trying to tell you is that the mafia then, if you believe this story, the mafia that I study is in the same uh, box, is in the same continuum as the state. You know, ultimately, governance is a function of the state. So, although uh, they may mafia, the mafias I study may be rudimentary, may be you know, not as developed as a fully functioning state, well, they're in the same business, the business of governance. Uh, and of course, uh, we're not trying to say that mafias and the state are the same thing. Uh, maybe anarchists would agree to that statement, but it's a bit unfair on... Uh, a bit unfair on democratic states. So there, are, there is a very clear difference between, uh, say, a, a, a mafia family in Sicily and, uh, and the United Kingdom, I think, right? There should be. Uh, and the, the tentative answer to that is that the real difference is this uh, kind of cumbersome way of putting it that the collective action mechanism that constrain the institutions of governance are different. To put differently, if you live in a mafia land, in a mafia-governed territory, you don't get to elect your boss. The mafia boss does not get elected by you. You, know, you don't have any power over who becomes the mafia boss. So you are a victim, ultimately, of a unjust order, an order which has got no justice because you have no rights in a mafia state, in a mafia state of situation. Um, so the, to put it in a more academic way, corrective action mechanism do not constrain the boss anymore. He may be constrained by uh, other considerations like rationality but not by justice. So there is no, there is no criminal code that you can appeal to, there is no uh, rules you can appeal to. And as this, so in the way I think about this, as this mechanism becomes more and more uh, effective, as the people who live in a given context have more and more choice over who rules them, well then you move from a mafia to a rule of law state and potentially to a democratic state. And if you study insurgencies, some of them are extremely sophisticated. The, the insurgency in Colombia, uh, the FARC, which is now effectively shut down um, the, you know, it was a left wing insurgency that was very active in the 70s and 80s and now it's disbanded uh, but this, the FARC had a rudimentary justice system, they had uh, uh, courts and, uh, and there was a rudimentary justice system, now obviously it wasn't perfect but you could go to court when I went to Burma, to this part of Burma called the uh, uh, the, the, the Golden Triangle, which is run by a, a, a military organization called the WA Army, WA Army, and they are sort of a remnant, sort of a, a descendant of the Communist Party of Burma, which now become a sort of an independent army. Well, I was told that the, the daughter of one of the main leaders of the, of the WA Army had uh, run over one person in a car and she was brought to court and sentenced. Now, I'm sure she got a better sentence, a lighter sentence than somebody else, but still there was a justice system even members of the elite would, uh, uh, would have to abide to. So, to me, that's the key difference between, uh, between the mafia and the state, in case you wondered whether I was kind of argued that the state is the same as the mafia. And then we have, empirically speaking, some kind of uh, organizations that do not really govern many domains, or even aspire to govern many domains, they, they govern only one domain, maybe prostitution. 
So if you want to, or, or, or drugs. So if you want to push drugs in a given neighborhood, you have to ask the permission of the gang. But the gang would not really be able to uh, prevent you from opening a shop. So that to me is a different kind of um, beast, uh, which maybe will evolve into a mafia, but remains uh, separate and it needs a special name and controls only a single market. I go with me? Yeah? Does it make sense? So that hopefully helps to understand what we are talking about. Now let me um, now go a bit into the meat of democracy and the mafia, and, and let's go back to, to Sicily, to Sicily where uh, arguably a very distinguished mafia emerged. So the mafia in Sicily emerged um, um, between 1816, 1812, and 18... By 1838, we know the mafia was there. We have a report by a guy called Pietro Lor, who was the procurator general in Trapani, and he writes a report in 1838 to the king, and uh, he basically describes what we uh, observe today. So there are individual families, they have a ritual, and they um, coordinate across each other uh, in, in, in western Sicily, which is where the Sicilian mafia is located. So we know that the mafia emerged around the time of the end of feudalism in Sicily, and they... Uh, transition to the market economy. What happened in Sicily uh, between 1812 and 1816 was that uh, land became a privatized commodity before it was owned by the lords, by the feudal lords. Uh, with the Napoleonic invasion, it, the, the, the land was split up and even church land was auctioned. And so you go from around 6,000 landowners to more than 60,000 in a matter of very few few years, uh, which of course generated a lot of uh, complex uh, dynamics because the state was not very equipped to dis determine and define property rights and protect them. Anyway, we know that the mafia emerged around 1838 and we can talk more if you want about how the mafia emerged. Uh, but then there is this man called uh, Leopoldo Franchetti who was uh, a very sort of uh, well-meaning Italian intellectual who in 1876 uh, travels to Sicily and writes an amazing report on the mafia in Sicily. He, he writes it uh, self-funded, so he was an aristocrat, so he could afford it. He was particularly upset the way the Italian state, new unified Italian state in 1860, was dealing with the southern question, and he thought he should see for himself. So he goes to Sicily with a friend and stays there for a year, and writes probably what is the first ethnography of the, Itali of the Sicilian mafia, an amazing book. <laughs> Uh, which unfortunately is not translated into English, uh, but it's uh, on the par of Tocqueville democracy in America. You know, that kind of intellectual uh, ability to see social relations. Um, and the key point I want to, to report to you today is this sentence he writes. He says, the villains uh, still ready to serve the purpose of others have become self-employed. So what happened in Sicily before the mafia emerged is that you had feudal lords that employed thugs, you know, bravi, people who controlled, were on the fields and they beat up the peasants and they kind of policed the countryside. Once the feudal lords um, retreat and lose the land and have to sell it off, these villains, who still work for other people, they become self-employed. So they don't work anymore for the, for the lord. So they're not just uh, thugs of the lord, they're not just... Uh, the, the arm of a particular employer, they have many employers. Um, 
Does it make sense? So they are an autonomous entity, an autonomous source of power, and they are ready to sell their, their, um, their violent services to whoever would pay. Now, this is in essence what the mafia does from that point in time. Um, and he, he, they do it in a very uh, nasty way. This is a quotation from a book by John Dickey on the Sicilian Mafia, which is a very popular, very good popular history of the Sicilian Mafia, which if you want to read a good book about it, I recommend it. Um, mafiosi would intimidate and murder countless socialists, communists, trade union leaders, so many in fact that it came to be seen as if the mafia's very purpose was to battle organized working class in the countryside into submission. Now the reason why he writes this is, is partly because there was a movement in Sicily uh, called the Fasci Siciliani which was started uh, because of a drought I think and so they, they were not paid the peasants and the peasants organized a socialist movement to request, to, to strike ultimately and so what the elite does in Sicily is to use the mafia to crush this movement. So the, the perception we get from many accounts is that all the mafia is doing is simply to serve the interest of the landowners to, uh, to crush uh, the working class, which is uh, to a great extent uh, correct. But there are also examples in which uh, sometimes the mafia will switch side and protect uh, some local cooperative uh, which would ask for their services. So it's not that they were constantly and only uh, crushing um, the same group of people. But certainly they have a problem. <laughs> the mafia has a problem with socialist and communist and trade union leaders. And uh, the next quote is from Antonio Calderone who is a a, a, ba a mafia boss which testified against the mafia in the, in the 80s and he makes a very interesting point about uh, the relationship between democracy and the mafia or electoral democracy and, and the mafia so the Cosa Nostra has always opposed the communist party and the left but why? You know, why do they oppose the communist party? and we also did not like the fascists while I was in Catania, the instructions were to vote only for centrist party, what he calls the democratic parties. Uh, if a totalitarian party comes to power, the Cosa Nostra is finished. And which are the totalitarian parties? The communists, the socialists, the fascists, and the Christian Democrats, which was the ruling party of Italy from the end of the Second World to the 1990s, was actually a good party, a democratic party, truly democratic. The mafia loved that. Uh, they would share power. You see, that's the key point. <coughs> For the mafia, they want a party which shares power with them, that accepts their existence. The moment the party would not allow the existence of the mafia, it becomes a totalitarian party. The socialist party, the communist party, would not come to terms on a regular basis with with the mafia. So the mafia at that time was voting for parties such as the Republican Party, the tiny Liberal Party, a tiny uh, Sprinter Socialist Party, which was uh, on the right, um, and the Socialist Party as well at some point, so-called Italian Socialist Party, but not the, uh, the, the Communist Party. Um, the mafia could get along with that. Uh, it would make it possible to do more. Does it make sense? So that's the kind of political allegiance that you find in, uh, in the mafia. And then uh, the other question is, uh, what does the mafia see in, uh, in electoral politics? 
Well, for the mafia, uh, elections are an opportunity. An opportunity, and elections is a market, right? It's a market for votes, where you can buy and sell votes. So, as the mafia was growing in strength, there was there was also an extension of the voting rights in Italy. Italy, in 1861, only 2% of people could vote. In 1882, 6.9, and then in 1912, all males could vote, and in 1946, all uh, uh, everybody could vote, including uh, women. So it took a long time to have a full electoral, uh, you know, everybody could vote. But as the election, uh, as the franchise expanded, also a market opportunity for the mafia expanded, which was to control the vote. So the mafia politicians always uh, wanted us to, because we can provide the vote. So a key function of the mafia in the electoral system is to provide votes for these parties that they can share power and they come to terms with the mafia. And the best electoral system for the mafia has always been proportional representation with preference voting. Because, uh, um, so as you understand the electoral systems, uh, if you have, uh, imagine you have a first past the post, uh, like you have in this country, with a large constituency, you understand what I mean, right? You have basically one guy who gets elected to the MP position, and there are, I don't know, 20,000 people voting for this person, 30,000, I don't know, big half chunk of oxygen, let's say. Um, well, it's very hard for the mafia to control uh, even half of those votes. Uh, they would, uh, I mean, there are situations in which the voting could be very close and even a few hundred votes would make the difference, but most, in most cases you would need to control a lot of votes. But if you have a PR system, proportional representation with preference voting within the list of the party, uh, what the mafia can do is to make sure that the people in that particular list get uh, the mafia vote, get on top of the list, and get elected thanks to the general voting that goes through the PR system. So the competition for votes in a PR system with preference voting is within the party list of which you are part of. So if you are uh, a candidate in Palermo in the 70s, you don't care about the communists or the socialists, you don't care about them. That's a problem of the national party to compete against the, uh, you know, for big issues. What you care about is your other Christian Democratic Party fellow guy who, is, uh, got, uh, who has got more preference votes and more friends that would vote with him. So the temptation is to use the mafia to vote for you. And the mafia found really sophisticated ways to make sure that you could, uh, you could sign the vote. So you can actually have a way to vote in a PR preference system so that you can almost uh, know exactly how many people had promised to vote and then would vote for you. Are you with me? Does it make sense? Um, I can speak, uh, we can talk about more about this, but uh, it's a key, uh, it's a key. And just as we come to an end of this early part, I wanted to draw attention to this paper which just came out, uh, in which these three economists, they study uh, the effect of the mafia on electoral voting in, in Italy, and they have a measure of mafia prevalence from the 1900, which comes from a report, and this measure of mafia pre presence in Italy goes from one to three, and they check the effect that this uh, uh, that a change from one to two to and two to three would have on the uh, on the elections, and then they have an index of concentration, which is used in economics to study how uh, industries are concentrated, so to what extent an industry is monopolized or is competitive. So using this index. Um, Hirschman is one of the authors of the index, incidentally. 
they come to the conclusion that the presence of the mafia is associated with a greater concentration of votes on few parties, right? So that's the real effect that the mafia has on elections. Fewer parties get most of the votes, so they exclude other parties. And you, you can measure this as you go from low mafia to more mafia, and to more mafia, less uh, dispersion of votes and more concentration. So people vote for those parties. Let me um, end this uh, digression on mafia and, uh, and politics with this final slide. Um, so, so I suppose the point I want to make is that the mafia has got a political dimension. Uh, there have been uh, mafia groups that have uh, toyed with the idea of taking over the state. Um, if you uh, follow the, the story of Colombia, of course, Pablo Escobar is, uh, is himself was a candidate. He became a candidate in the Senate in Colombia. He had a political program. You know, obviously, it was self-interested. He wanted to avoid extradition to the United States. But if you read uh, in detail his political program, it made some sense. You know, he wanted to reduce the American influence in the U.S. He wanted to solve poverty. Um, he was a populist, in a sense, uh, of that kind. Uh, obviously self-serving populist, but we have seen many of self-serving populists uh, winning elections, so he wouldn't be the first one. Uh, and he was making money through selling cocaine, which wasn't perceived to be a social arm in the country where he was. So anyway, Escobar certainly had a political program. And even in Sicily, just after the Second World War, the Sicilian mafia for a moment thought that they might, um, uh, they might want an independent Sicily. And there was a movement uh, for uh, independence of Sicily called Independentismo Siciliano. So I think, uh, just to conclude, mafias always have to strike a balance or a trade-off between uh, making a deal with the political powers of the time, like uh, in this case... Um, Cosa Nostra did in Italy from 46 to 1992. Uh, so you strike a deal with the political power, or on the other hand, you attack the, uh, the political power. And of course, there is a huge research agenda here to study under which conditions you would want to strike a deal and under which conditions you would launch an all out attack on the state. Escobar famously did that. And in the, the boss of the Italian, of the Sicilian mafia, a man called Rina, also did that for two years. They both failed, so maybe that's why uh, it's not a great policy, but it has been tried. And I think in some countries in Latin America, it may be succeeding. So let me now turn to the second concept I wanted to discuss a bit more, which is thugs for hire. The point of this talk is that thugs for hire is a very different beast. These are not uh, mafiosi. They are not autonomous governance structure. They are, as, as we say in the paper, non-state actors used by authorities to impose policies and decisions upon a reluctant population. So you have the Chinese government sometimes in China, but you also have Suharto in in Indonesia, in Zimbabwe, they are a form of privatized state violence which are drawn from the underworld. Usually they come from outside the territory, they are sent to a particular area, and they basically beat up and uh, victimize peasants or landowners in order to uh, enforce state policies. And there are examples of this across the world. Um, China is the most significant one, but also Zimbabwe and, and Suarto. Here I have a long quote about Egypt. So if you bear with me, I think we should read it. To support the needs of a never-expanding regime of terror, the Minister of Interior started to outsource its most dirty business. 
with increasing impunity, criminal investigation officers began to promote a new police force, SUGS. And these SUGS are criminals with a record of violence who are paid to carry out duties of disciplined members of the public in return for police turning, an eye, uh, turning away from a blind eye to their criminal activities. So this Baltaglia a job description has expanded to include voter intimidation, beating up, raping, sexually abusing criminal suspects and political activists, breaking up demonstrations, forcibly removing farmers from their land and much more. So this is what's happening in... Uh, in, uh, in Egypt, and this is a very different kind of uh, um, privatized violence than, than what the mafia is. Now, I understand that I've got uh, maybe half an hour still, 20 minutes? 23 minutes. 23 minutes. In these 23 minutes, I wanted to, to discuss this work I did with my co author uh, on the triads and the umbrella movement. So, this is a, a, a qualitative fieldwork we did at the time of the attacks that the students, um, the students were uh, victims of during the, um, the Occupy movement in Hong Kong. So if I am very clever, which I'm not, uh, I wanted to show you some of the pictures I took at the time. Uh, is it coming up? So these are some of the... Just to give you a sense of what was going on in Hong Kong in... Uh, from September to December uh, 2014. Um, so imagine this is the main uh, throwaway, you know, the main highway of downtown Hong Kong, which was peacefully occupied by students who uh, camped there, and you could actually stay there and, and camp there overnight. Uh, and this was called the Umbrella Movement, which I was telling you about, about um, trying to, uh, and it was umbrellas were used to, to, to protect against spray. You can see these are very young children from high school. They must be 14, really, facing the police, right? They're facing the police just for democracy. You know, what they want is one vote, one person. Um, let me see. Uh, so basically, this, you know, it was really sweet that uh, because they were not going to school, uh, these students would then camp and study overnight. And so there was a study corner, so there were study groups. You could see uh, Anna Harent, you know, the, what they would be normally working on. Uh, books by academic chemistry. You know, it was, so there was a chemistry teacher who would teach chemistry. Uh, this is a very famous wall called the John Lennon wall, which I think now has been cleared by the police in Hong Kong, uh, where people would put stickers on with the sentences about democracy. Every night there would be a meeting of all of these people, and a, a leader would talk about what happened during the day. Um, so we attended these meetings. We slept in the camp, so you could sleep actually overnight, but you couldn't pay for the tent. So we, I tried to pay, and they said, no, it's... We don't want money. Uh, you can only help us. Um, so we stayed in, I stayed in democracy lane, <laughs> which was very nice. Um, so these are some of the sentences that you would uh, find in various languages, including Russian and Italian. Um, and then, of course, the camp, this encampment was barricaded by, in this way because the police uh, would uh, try to remove these students from the, from the camp. Uh, it was pretty easy uh, to, do the, to do that. Uh, so I think 
Yeah, that's to show that I was there. Because <laughs> you never know, it could, not, you know, it could be off the internet or something. I mean, but what is behind me is actually a shrine. It's a shrine to gods, right? And so there was a, and this is a, um, a god which apparently is worshipped both by the tribes but also by ordinary people in Hong Kong. So there was a religious dimension to this fight. And, and this was the attack that I'll talk to you uh, in a second. So let me see if I can get off of this now. On the screen you had gone back to your thing, but you've now ah. too big. Okay. Can you make it? Mm-hmm. I knew I shouldn't do this. <laughs> there we go. That's fine. That's right. Okay. So does it go now? Okay, great. Um, so the Hong Kong triads are um, the local mafia in Hong Kong. Um, they, I mean, we don't have much time to discuss where they originated from. They originated in the Qing dynasty in the 1840s, 18, uh, 1860s. They were mainly involved in opium trafficking and slave labor and labor racketeering. Um, but we know that by 1909, there was a standardized ritual among all of these different gangs. So they all subscribed to a, a standardized ritual. So although you might be a member of a given triad, you would uh, join it uh, through a ritual which was shared by other gangs within the Hong Kong triad. Does that make sense? So that's the key essence. So these are independent crime groups which share the same rules and standardized ritual. And I put there this uh, yellow bird operation because at the time of the Tiananmen Square, one of the, uh, of the triads actually helped the students, the Chinese students, escape China uh, and to, come, to go to Hong Kong and then some of them went to Paris. So the, the triads were not automatically and always been uh, pro a particular political power. But then by 1993, uh, Chinese officials started to talk about patriotic triads and how much they should uh, be brought into the fold of uh, the new regime. Um, so the attack that I, that I witnessed and that I, I, I report in the paper with, with Rebecca uh, took place on the 3rd of October, between 10 a.m. and 4.30 in the night. Um, what happened is that by 10 a.m. some uh, thugs started to... Um, in fact, I probably have it here started to remove, uh, remove uh, the, in this particular area of Hong Kong, which is on the other side, is near Mason Road, started to remove the sandbags that, and also the tents where students were sleeping overnight. And, uh, and then the um, confrontation increased in, um, in, uh, in, in, in violence throughout, uh, throughout the night. Um, the, the police has been accused of not intervening, so to letting the confrontation escalate. The police uh, claimed that they were busy doing something else. But anyway, the, the bottom line is that these thugs, these are the kind of people that were involved, were removing the barriers and, uh, and beating up uh, protesters very much. And there are video evidence that uh, some of the thugs were arrested by the police and then routinely released without ever being charged. Uh, some of them eventually were arrested and charged and released pretty quickly, um, while the only people who actually ended up in jail were uh, 
Protestants. Um, what is most extraordinary about this event uh, is that uh, eventually the attack failed. So the students held the, the line and they were not uh, intimidated by this vicious attack by uh, thugs, and in a sense, for once, you know, democracy won. At least they held the line, and by 4.30, they, uh, the thugs retreated, and, the, and the, the site was held, in a sense, here, right? Um, the Amnesty International called it uh, an attack by organized crime. Uh, the, the news media in the world uh, decried this particular attack. Now, what we try to ask in this paper is who attacked the students, how much they were paid, and the question is, did the triads self-mobilize from the neighborhood to protect their local business, or did they come from the outside in order to attack the students? If it was the latter, it would be an evidence that the triads acted on the uh, on on the order, not of themselves, but of other forces that made them do it. Um, and so they were basically thugs for hire, uh, who paid them and can this happen again. Um, now, uh, this is the data that we collected. We, we did a lot of, uh, first we read all the, the newspaper articles, we did a number of interviews with news reporters, a news editor with students, uh, we interviewed volunteers. There was a first aid, of course, uh, people who had all attended and were there at the time. We interviewed many taxi drivers and minivan drivers. Like we can talk more about the importance of minivans in Hong Kong, but basically it's a business run by the triads. And we also interviewed trade unionists, that are the trade unionists of the van driver and the taxi drivers, which is a front for the triads. And uh, we interviewed shop owners, but also thanks to the ingenuity of my co-author, we also managed to interview people that are uh, in the trials, and they gave us their version of events. So uh, that's the basis. Ah, just to give you a sense of who the taxi drivers are. <laughs> They're not exactly the standard taxi driver. You know, that's the taxi driver that we interviewed. Taxi drivers are very, very outspoken against uh, the movement, um, and they uh, were not great fun. So let me try to go through the key questions and answer with the fieldwork interviews that we did. Who attacked the students? Well, according to a news person who was on the site all the time, anti-umbrella um, anti movement protesters were shuttled to Mongkok by minibuses and van. Uh, some of the kids this guy was working for uh, told him that they were going to have some fun in Mongkok because they were told to do so. And then the, uh, one of the triad bosses we interviewed uh, told us most of the people who went to attack the students were youngsters, aged between 15 and 20. There were nobody in their triad group, so they saw this as an opportunity to prove themselves, to humiliate the police, and to impress their bosses. Uh, those who, and this is the second triad, uh, same triad guy, those who joined the fight were based in Hong Kong rather than the mainland, so they were not coming from China, they were not shipped in from China. Uh, but they were basically, uh, some of them were of Indian and Pakistani origins because this particular triad group, the Singwo triad, which is based in the New Territories, which is in the northern part of Hong Kong, recruiting these communities. Um, and finally, the second triad boss told us, I know the people who beat up the students on the 3rd of October. I saw them on television. Some came from the New Territories, so from outside the neighborhood. I was not surprised that they were all released after being briefly arrested because the high command of the police knew they were coming. So this seems to be 
the profile, I mean, the paper goes into greater details on the profile of the people, but the key point here is that they are not from the neighborhood. And um, uh, then also we try to, ah, sorry, this is a continuation. Apple Davy, a vocal anti-China newspaper, reported that members of this trial group um, had uh, well-known bosses were among those involved in the attack. So again, this washing war seems to be quite a problem. Now, how much they were paid? Again, our triad guys told us the payment depending on experience and, uh, and seniority. So there is meritocracy, obviously, in the triad. Uh, Low-level hoodrooms were paid 800 uh, Hong Kong dollars. More senior people were paid more. But basically, they were paid, right? It's not that they mobilize, self-mobilized to protect their turf. These are people who were somewhere else. They were paid. They were shipped in, attacked the students, and left. So it seems to be a profile of thugs for hire, as we defined it before. So individuals, some with style backgrounds, received cash to attack the students, and mm, the aggressors came from Hong Kong, so not from China. Um, crucially, the attackers did not come from the neighborhood, Hong Kong, but other parts of Hong Kong, especially the new territories. Um, now, did they mobilize to protect their business? Uh, now, the point is, the occupation obviously had an effect on the local businesses. Taxi drivers couldn't go through because the road was blocked. Shops uh, didn't have the cars going by. There were brothels. This is an area of triad's presence in particular, Hong Kong, as you know uh, from Hong Kong. So there are brothels, there are bars there. So was the business affected by the student? So we tried to elicit that question from our interviews. The taxi drivers had not lost much... Uh, Money during the occupation told us a taxi driver. Incidentally, this taxi driver told us, I hate the students, they should set themselves on fire and get away because <laughs> they hated them. So these are not people who were sympathetic to the students. And yet he admits that there was no loss of income. Then we interviewed this uh, trade unionist, or the, or actually the owner of a 200-strong taxi company. So although the loss was significant initially, revenues actually went up towards the middle and the end phases of the Umbrella movement. Um, he noted that people were more willing to take taxis to return home. The news reporter told us, was told by drivers that they lost no money, um, yet the owners of these companies lodged complaints against the students. So there were legal complaints against the students for the occupation of the territory, but it was not for economic reasons, because they lost money. And then the leader of the minibus trade union told us that the drivers were affected at first, but then they just adjusted and found alternative routes, which was very easy to go by this particular occupation. Um, now, I go here with more interviews, probably we don't have much time left, but uh, this is the illegal side of the story. Prostitution and gambling close to the occupied areas in Hong Kong were at first affected, but then revenues quickly picked up, told us the two triad bosses. Uh, the, routes, the roads were open, why would business go down? This is the nickname we give to, the, to one of the bosses. And the triad's income is diverse. So imagine, imagine that, you know, to launch such an attack, which is going to be on every news bulletin in the world, it's a huge cost for the mafia. It's not that you just do it right. You must, have, you must be under such a huge pressure uh, if you do that. And so the mafia boss told us very sensibly, you know, it would be crazy to uh, launch such a direct attack, which would be so high profile, uh, for business reasons, because our income is diverse, um, and even we might lose some money from the minibus, but we don't rely just on one source. Brussels, pubs, gambling in Hong Kong 
lost little revenue, uh, customers quicker return, temporary loss of income, um, and also protection fee is mandatory, so you still have to pay protection fee, uh, even if you don't want to, as the guy told us. Uh, so the bottom line, as far as we understood, is that this was not motivated by... by now, who paid for them? Who paid for these people to attack? Now, that's obviously we don't know exactly, and then you get into very dangerous territory because it's very speculative. Um, but one uh, very experienced news agent person, new news person, uh, told us that one has to look uh, at how developers in the new territories manage to acquire land in the new territories. According to the regulation, this is very complicated, right? So it may not be crystal clear. But there are very odd land deals happening in the northern part of Hong Kong, and the government, the triads, the local triads, and the local developers are all involved in this, in evicting, evicting um, rightful owners of this land. So he's referring to that. And if you happen to be from Hong Kong, you might have all, uh, watched this movie called Overheard. It's a film, three movies in, in, on this topic. And basically they tell the story of how the triads are pushing the peasants and the locals <laughs> out in order to help developers. So the argument of this guy is that this uh, connection this, to this bunch of business interest wanted to show their gratitude towards the central government in, in uh, Hong Kong and possibly in China, and they paid for the attack. So that's the idea. I mean, we don't really know. We don't have the receipts, of course, but that's the, the, the idea. Uh, let me uh, move on. Now, the final point I want to make is that if you uh, think about this with the standard Italian mafia eyes, you would know that in order to do anything in a mafia territory that is run by a particular mafia group, you need to ask permission to the local mafia. Right? If uh, um, I plan to kill a particular person in your territory, I would have to ask permission to you if it's your territory, and vice versa. So you have to ask permission to enter the territory of another group. That's obvious, as you, as you would expect in a, in a standard state, right? So local gangs were not asked permission and uh, were not happy to see such an invasion, told us uh, the journalist. But the two battalion bosses confirmed to us that the local uh, Mongkok gang was not asked permission to... Uh, to come in. In fact, the local trial members were very upset about the this invasion. Um, and in fact, later, they even started to hang around the protester side in order to ensure that there was no second attack. So you see, the point here is very important from the mafia point of view. There was no permission um, asked and none given. So let me start to come to a conclusion. Uh, on this particular uh, field trip or field paper. Uh, triads did not self-mobilize, as far as we understand. Uh, they were paid to do so by not, non, not well-defined business interests. And there was even a tension between the local triads and the individual from outside that uh, arrived without asking uh, for permission. And the final point I want to, to conclude on this, and I think I've made my general theoretical conclusion already, the question is, could this happen again? And the question is very easily answered. It did happen again. It did happen again, uh, very recently, uh, because, as you know, the democracy movement is continuing in Hong Kong, and on, in July this year, uh, in, a, in a metro station in the new territories, when the protesters were in commuters, also ordinary commuters, were coming home from the protest, but also they were coming home from work, they went through the 
the, the metal station and over 100 uh, men, armed men, attacked the commuters. And so there, were, um, there was a pregnant woman who was attacked, there was a journalist who was attacked, plus uh, ordinary members of the police and some, uh, some students. And only yesterday, only yesterday, this man called Jimmy Sham, uh, who is one of the most famous activists against, uh, I mean, for, for democracy, uh, was attacked by four and five men. He's half dead now. So not only could happen again, it has happened again. And the general thrust of this work is that um, we might be seeing a shift from uh, a standard mafia behavior on the part of the triads to them becoming really thugs for hire. And on this note, I am here. Thank you. Thank you very much.